All right. This evening we will be in Numbers 31 only. Uh, last time we were together, we actually covered uh, four chapters, Numbers 27 through 30. Um, and uh, I guess the most significant uh, portion of those uh, chapters we saw in Numbers 27, uh, where Joshua was identified to be the successor of Moses as the uh, leader of Israel, this new generation of Israelites that he will subsequently take into the land of Canaan, uh, the land that God had promised to Abraham. And uh, tonight we'll be in Numbers uh, chapter 31, uh, and it is a challenging uh, chapter. Uh, the heading over my Bible, uh, Numbers 31, says the slaughter of Midian. And so, um, as I previously mentioned, the conquest uh, actually began back in chapter 21. Um, and uh, so the conquest will continue tonight. The Israelites are on the east side of the Jordan River. And uh, they are uh, getting ready, uh, we'll see, um, for Moses to die. Uh, so that this new generation of Israelites can be led by Joshua uh, west across the Jordan River. And uh, we will see that in the coming chapters. We're coming to the end of the book of Numbers, uh, and then, uh, Lord willing, to pass into the book of Deuteronomy, or the second giving of the law. So, uh, here we are in Numbers chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. And Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord Yahweh had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. And they killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain. Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones, and all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods they plundered. Then they burned all their cities where they lived and all their camps with fire. And they took all the spoil and all the prey, both of man and of beast, and they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses, and to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the sons of Israel, to the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by the Jordan, opposite Jericho. So we'll pause there. So here we have uh, in uh, verse 2, Yahweh clearly commanding Moses and the Israelites uh, to take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. So just as a brief uh, historical overview, uh, back in uh, Numbers chapter 22, uh, the Midianites were part of the, that story beginning in Numbers chapter 22 where uh, they were enlisted um, by uh, Balak and where Balak sent for the prophet Balaam. So Midian was involved uh, in that. Uh, you can see uh, in verse 7, for example, of Numbers chapter 22, it says that the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. So um, the Midianites were um, a bunch of different nomadic clans, uh, but this is, this is clearly uh, the clan that was involved in the affair associated with the prophet Balaam. We also saw uh, a couple of sessions ago, back in chapter 25 of Numbers, um, this is the, uh, the episode of the sin at Peor, 
And you can see in verse 6 of Numbers chapter 25, Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And then, of course, you, uh, we saw how that plays itself out. Beginning in verse 10, you have uh, Phineas the son of Eleazar, who's now the high priest of Israel, who in his zeal, he goes into the tent and he pierces through uh, both the Israelite and the Midianite woman. And I would uh, note in Numbers 25, beginning in verse 14, now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. Verse 15, And the name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Verse 16, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks, with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor, and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. And so what we have here in Numbers chapter 31 is the carrying out of this command in Numbers chapter 25 verse 17. Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them. And so that is what we will see tonight. And I would just also note that in verse 15 of Numbers 25, there's this leader of the Midianites whose name is Zer. And if you just turn over to Numbers 31 now, you will see uh, in Numbers 31 verse 8 that it is most likely this same Zer is mentioned as one of the kings of Midian who is slaughtered by the Israelites. So we have, uh, verse 2, we have the vengeance for the sons of Israel. And then in verse 3, we see that same vengeance being referred to at the end of verse 3 as the Lord's vengeance on Midian. So we see here that the vengeance of Israel is inextricably tied to the vengeance of Yahweh. And I would also note here in verse 2 that uh, this will take place, uh, the execution of the Midianites by the Israelites, and then Moses will be gathered to his people. And I would note here that actually, um, although it's a sh relatively short time until Moses' death, uh, Moses' death, in fact, will not come until the end of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 34. So there's lots of scripture to get through uh, to, till we get to the uh, end of Moses' life. But clearly this is the last and most pressing issue that God assigns to Moses to oversee the slaughter of Midian. So they assemble this army, uh, 12,000 uh, war fighting men you can see that in verses 4 and 5 and 6 and they were being led by Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest which is very interesting uh, actually so there's a couple of comments here so uh, perhaps our first comment is a question uh, which is where exactly is Joshua um, and the answer to that question is well we don't know uh, where Joshua is. Uh, we don't know why Joshua was not commanded necessarily to lead uh, this 12,000 man army to go off uh, for the slaughter of the Midianites. Um, but certainly uh, we can understand why uh, Phineas was chosen. Um, he was chosen because of his great zeal for the Lord that we saw back just a couple of chapters ago. Uh, in um, 25, uh, of course, he was already there, um, had begun slaying the Midianites, as it were, specifically uh, the woman, Cosby, the daughter of Zer. It is, though, interesting that Phineas uh, is of a family of priests uh, who are not often um, leading the charge into battle. But we see here in verse 6 that Phineas um, did not go unarmed. Uh, what did he take with him? He took with him the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. And this, uh, the holy vessels being referred to here uh, are most likely um, the Urim and the Thummim. 
um, so that Eleazar could consult with them uh, if necessary. And of course, those are the tools of a priest. And so uh, it's just very interesting here uh, in Numbers chapter 31 that Phineas is in fact leading the army out and Joshua is not. And uh, anything that I would say beyond that I think would be uh, just some speculation. So he has the holy vessels and the trumpets in his hand. So verse 7, they make war against Midian. And at the end of verse 7, they killed every male. And that would be in contrast with verse 9, where they captured the women of Midian and their little ones. So they kill every male and they capture the women and the little ones. And of course, in verse 8 there, the five Midianite kings are mentioned. And it is also mentioned um, that they killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And um, we will see later here in Numbers chapter 31 why that is. Of course, again, there's a, there's a good question here. How did Balaam end up with the Midianites? Apparently, uh, perhaps the Midianites had hired uh, Balaam as a prophet uh, to protect them from the Israelites. Uh, and of course, there's no accounting for understanding the historical context because that certainly didn't work for Balak either. But uh, perhaps Balaam chose uh, for cash to go and uh, prophesy on behalf of Midian. And so when the Israelites go to, um, to slaughter the Midianites, they find Balaam there. And so they put him to death along with all of the Midianite Males, And again, we will see why also later in verse 16. So um, they burned all the cities, verse 10, all the camps with fire, verse 11. They took all the spoil and all the prey. And then they brought the captives, verse 12, and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of Israel. Verse 13, we pick up with the text. And Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord Yahweh in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But all the girls who have not known a man intimately spare for yourselves. Alright, let's stop there. Uh, we will briefly touch on these uh, five verses or so, six verses, and then we will come back to them at the end. But we see here that as the Israelite army comes back to the camp, Moses and Eleazar go out to them. Uh, perhaps to pay them due respect, but also to make sure that those who were unclean would not come into the camp and so make everyone unclean. We'll pick up with that actually over in verse 19. So they go out to the army, and in verse 14, it is abundantly clear, Moses is angry with their captains of thousands and captives, captains of hundreds, because, you can see in verse 15, that the army had in fact spared all of the women. And the reason why Moses is angry for them sparing all of the women is because these women caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, which of course is the reason why Balaam needed to die because he was the one who convinced uh, the Midianites to draw Israel into adultery and spiritual idolatry. And so Balaam uh, had to be executed as well, and so it was convenient uh, for him to be found among the Midianites. But either way, these women whom the army brought back uh, to the camp caused the sons of Israel, verse 16, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. That's chapter 25 of Numbers. And so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. And that plague resulted in the death of more than 20,000 Israelites for their sin, for their adultery, and for their intermingling with these um, Midianite 
um, seductresses, if you will. And so Moses is angry and gives a command. Verse 17. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. So to kill every male, um, we understand uh, the command, in a sense, uh, the, the command to kill the women who had been intimate with a man that would implicate them in the sin of Peor. To kill the little ones, specifically the male children, um, does two things. Number one, um, it ends the line of this Midianite tribe as they can no longer reproduce. Remember, all of, the, all of the other males had already been killed. We saw that earlier in verse 7. It also eliminates the possibility of this particular Midianite tribe to uh, carry out any retribution against the Israelites. Um, as, as we have talked about before, uh, these uh, Far Eastern or ancient Near Eastern um, cultures are very much uh, an uh, honor-based culture. And so um, with all of the adult males having been killed, it would have in that culture been incumbent upon the younger males, the children, to grow up and from an honor-based perspective to uh, mount some retributive um, attack against the Israelites for having killed all of their fathers. And so the killing, especially of the male little ones, would have ended the, the, uh, the tribal line and also eliminated the possibility of any retribution against the Israelites. And we will come back at the end to talk about um, this, this, uh, this slaughter and uh, the, the concept of what is often called holy war in general. Picking up in verse 19. And you camp outside the camp seven days. So this is Moses speaking to the uh, the war fighting men who had returned to the camp. And you, verse 19, camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. And you shall purify for yourselves every garment and every article of leather and all the work of goat's hair and all articles of wood. Verse 21, Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle, This is the statute of the law which the Lord Yahweh has commanded Moses. Only the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. But it shall be purified with water for impurity. But whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. And you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. And afterward, you may enter the camp. And so uh, this, I don't want to talk too much about this. We already saw these uh, laws for cleansing and for purification that we uh, saw uh, extensively back in the book of Leviticus. And so you have uh, war-fighting men who are undoubtedly coming in contact with not only blood, but also corpses. Um, and so uh, they are in need of purification to move from unclean back into clean status. And so also the metals and leather and all of the other booty that they had acquired uh, in the slaughter of Midian. And so uh, laid out very clearly here. And of course that would be a seven-day cleansing. And then they may enter the camp verse 24. Now, picking up in verse 25, we're going to see two types of taxes. Uh, and I won't necessarily read all of the verses, but what we see here is that some portion of the booty that is gained during the slaughter of Midian uh, will be taxed for the purpose of the, uh, the temple and the Levites so verse 25, Then the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, You and Eleazar the priest and the heads of the father's, father's households of the congregation, take account of the booty that was captured, both of man and of animal, and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. 
And so we're going to see two taxes here. We're going to see a tax in verse 28 and a tax in verse 30. So verse 28. And levy a tax for the Lord for the men of war who went out to battle. One in five hundred of the persons and of the cattle and of the donkeys and of the sheep. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as an offering to the Lord. Then verse 30. Another tax. And from the sons of Israel's half, you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of the persons, of the cattle, of the donkeys, and of the sheep, from all the animals, and give them to the Levites, who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest did just as the Lord had commanded. So, we see here that the booty that was acquired during the slaughter of the Midianites was first cut in half. Half of it would go to the men and their families who actually went out to war. And half of the booty would go to the rest of the sons of Israel. Once the booty was divided in half, there would be a tax, which is, I would note here, the lower tax, verse 28, the lower tax for the half that went to the men of war, because they were the ones who went out and they jeopardized their own lives on behalf of the the tribes of Israel. And so they were taxed in a much lower way. You can see verse 28, 1 in 500, for example, of the persons and of the cattle and of the donkeys and of the sheep. The higher tax, verse 30, is on the half of the booty that went to the rest of the sons of Israel who did not go out to war. If you remember, there were only 12,000 warriors. And so all of the other men in the camp of Israel who were not chosen to go out to war, uh, they got half, but they also get the higher tax. For example, uh, one of every 50 of the persons of the cattle, of the donkeys, and of the sheep in verse 30. Okay? And so these taxes, as I said, are given to Eleazar the priest, either as an offering to the Lord in verse 29, or to the Levites, you can see in verse 30, who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. Verse 31, and Moses and Eleazar the priest did just as the Lord had commanded it. So uh, in verses uh, 32 uh, through 41, you can see the tax from the men of war, so uh, from their half of the booty. I'm not going to go down through the numbers. You can certainly read those, but they're just a summary of what was brought back and subsequently the tax offered uh, to Eleazar the priest. And then in verses 42 through 47, you have the tax that is drawn from the rest of the congregation uh, uh, that was from half of the booty brought back from the slaughter of Midian, and given to the Levites, who kept charge of the tabernacle of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 47. We pick up in verse 48. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds, approached Moses, and they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. So we have brought as an offering to the Lord what each man found, articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and necklaces, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest took the gold from them, all kinds of wrought articles, and all the gold of the offering from which they, or which they offered up to the Lord from the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken booty, every man for himself. So Moses and Eleazar the priest took the gold from the captains of thousands and of hundreds and brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. Yahweh. And so we see here this accounting of the men of war who went out to war and to wage war against the Midianites. And we see clearly the blessing of God on this war. And we see the blessing of God as manifest in verse 49 that none of the Israelite soldiers of the 12,000 that went out was lost. They all went out and they all returned home safely. God has blessed this war with Midian. And because of this great blessing on the lives of these men, they make an offering, the word offering there at the beginning of verse 50, where it says, so we have brought as an offering. This is a free will offering. It's the very same word that's used back in Leviticus chapter 1. So it's a, it's a praise and thanks 
free will offering, and they identify it even there at the end of verse 50 to make atonement for ourselves. And so this would be uh, for partially for cleansing. It may also, in their mind, have um, a sense of atonement because of the fact that they came back and took captive uh, the women instead of uh, killing the women. And so uh, they, of their own free will, make this offering and so they are thankful to have returned home safely. And so we see in verse 54, Moses and Eleazar, uh, the priest, they accept the offering from the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds. And they brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. So um, we had the booty uh, for the temple and for the Levites. And we also have a portion, this free will offering from those who had gone out to battle. All right, so this is a bit of a, a difficult chapter, I think. We, we're coming into the portion uh, of, of the scriptures, um, and, and there will be lots more of this uh, as we move through uh, the Pentateuch, and then especially, uh, Lord willing, if we move into the conquest of Canaan that is described uh, in the book of Joshua. And what we have here is we have uh, the Lord, Yahweh, who is commanding his people, Israel, to uh, destroy entire people groups. And uh, even in this particular chapter, the reason why I want to address it here, uh, we've, we've um, sort of come close to it, a bit of a flyby to it a couple of times, uh, but I wanted to talk extensively this evening uh, as we get uh, prepared for these portions of the scripture. Specifically, um, Numbers chapter 31, verse 17, may be a bit of a difficult verse uh, for some to swallow. Now, therefore, as Moses is commanding these uh, men of war, these Israelite men of war, now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. And uh, I can assure you that uh, if they are uh, difficult for uh, some of us in the church, uh, they are most decidedly uh, difficult, in a sense, uh, for those who are skeptics against the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, specifically, who is a very well-known uh, atheist and skeptic, uh, he has used these texts in the uh, Old Testament many times in his arguments against uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, he uses words like genocide and ethnic cleansing and how could anybody worship a God who um, decides to send off one people group uh, to destroy completely another people group from off the face uh, of the earth. Uh, he calls the God of the Old Testament, uh, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, uh, names, uh, specifically megalomaniac and, and other uh, more derogatory names, which I will not repeat here. And so I want to talk about this concept uh, tonight. I want to talk about it relatively in depth. Obviously, they, we could have the meeting after the meeting, um, but I want to talk about it in depth because I, it's something that I think that uh, if we're doing our um, devotional reading diligently through the scriptures, um, as uh, we, you know, we often exhort all of you to do, you 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 will obviously come across these texts, and so I want to frame them a little bit for all of us this evening as part of Numbers chapter thirty-one. So here we go. Point number one. Point number one is, in all of these discussions, we must begin with a God-centered view. We must begin with a God-centered view. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. God, specifically in this context, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who of course we all know is the one true God, but He is holy, just, and good. That is who he is, and some of those attributes which I just mentioned are among his most defining attributes. God is holy, just, and good. And men, although made in image of God, which we know from the early portions of Genesis, although made in the image of God, men are fallen, sinful enemies, deserving of death and destruction. 
That, that's a fact, and we know that, of course, from Genesis chapter 3. God said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Paul picks up on that in Romans when he declares in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. This is the story of the scriptures from front to back. God is holy, just, and good, and men, although image of God, are fallen, sinful enemies of God, deserving death. What's the, what's the, the sub-point here? The sub-point is this, is that the execution of fallen, rebellious men, or women, or even children, frankly, is just and righteous any time anywhere. God is under no obligation to allow fallen, sinful, rebellious enemies to live. That's where we must start. And if Michelangelo creates a masterpiece, then it is his to keep or to destroy as he sees fit. And this has clear implications for God's creation. And this is, by the way, not the first time we have seen this. Right? You can't get six chapters into Genesis without seeing the global catastrophic flood judgment on what may have been hundreds of millions or even billions of people on the earth at that time. And we will see it again and again in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. We will see judgment, the judgment of God falling on entire nations where he uses one unrighteous nation to judge and destroy another unrighteous nation. Again, Old Testament and New Testament. right? And so this, the, these texts that we read about in Numbers chapter 31 are certainly not isolated, but they're the ones that are most often in focus as we deal with skeptics like Richard Dawkins. So point number one is this. If we don't have a God-centered view or a God-centered paradigm, then our conclusions and our reactions will be distorted. That's point number one. Point number two. We must also have an Israel-centered view of history at this point in time. We must also have an Israel-centered view. So, all land is God's land. See point number one, right? God made it, it's his to do with whatever he pleases. But more specifically, God promised Canaan to Abraham's descendants all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. God promised this land to Abraham's descendants who are now, we know, down through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Israel. We also know that the Canaanites were an evil people. For example, they practiced child exposure and sacrifice, which Pastor Mike mentioned this previous Sunday. And in fact, God waited patiently for them to fill up the measure of their sins. You can see that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. God did not rush in to Canaan to kill all of the Canaanites. No, he gave them time. He waited patiently for them to see whether or not they would search for him and repent they did not. Israel has been chosen by Yahweh via covenant. Okay, The book of the covenant, Exodus chapter 20 to 23. Israel has, chosen, has been chosen by Yahweh by way of covenant to be a reflection of his holiness. We saw that in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, which is also quoted in the New Testament. For example, Matthew chapter 5, Yahweh tells Israel, Be holy, even as I am holy. And so Israel's chosen and, and, and in covenant with Yahweh to be a reflection of His holiness. And quite frankly, if we're going to be fair about this, Yahweh has already similarly judged Israel for their sin and rebellion, which we saw in Numbers chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. After ten times, when that prior congregation or that prior generation of Israel had complained sufficiently enough, 
God judged them and caused them all to fall in the wilderness over 40 years. And so, actually, quite frankly, it's not even as if Yahweh is really uh, showing some sort of favor to Israel in regards to whether or not they're going to be judged for their sin as well. They are, as are the Canaanites, as are the Midianites. And as Israel is to be the reflection of God's holiness, the Midianites tempted the Israelites to violate Yahweh's commands. We see that in Numbers 31, verse 16. Behold, these women caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague, which was also a judgment, I would note, was among the congregation of the Lord. These Midianites tempted the Israelites to violate Yahweh's commands. And this creates a stain on Yahweh's name and his power. So, for example, in Ezekiel 36, 22, you can write it down if you'd like. I will go there myself. Ezekiel 36, 22, in this great paragraph that looks forward to the new covenant, God says this through the prophet Ezekiel, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you, Israel, have profaned among the nations where you went. So when Israel commits spiritual adultery with the Midianite women, that is a stain on God's name. His name is blasphemed by the very people that have been called to be a reflection of His holiness. And because it was the Midianites who tempted Israel to sin, These tempters who caused Yahweh's covenant people to sin against Yahweh and so profane profane the name of Yahweh, they deserve to die. That is point number two. Israel is the reflection of Yahweh's holiness and the tempters of Israel deserve to die. So we must have an Israel-centered view of history at this time. Number three, point number three. We must remember federal headship. This is a biblical concept from front to back. It begins with Adam in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3, and it ends with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We must remember federal headship. Why is that relevant? Well, first of all, what is federal headship? Federal headship means that one head represents a multitude of people. For example, Adam... Jesus, but also you will see it throughout the Bible with regard to kings and rulers. Kings and rulers act as federal heads of the people whom they represent. And so the Midianite people are judged because of the choices and the actions of the Midianite kings, five of whom are named there in Numbers chapter 31 verse 8. And we also see that back in Numbers 25 that that woman, Cosby, was the daughter of one of the Midianite kings. And so, as the kings are judged, so also the people are judged. It's a recurring theme again and again and again in the scripture. So that is point three. We must remember federal headship. Point four. And this is Something that needs to be very clear. These divinely ordained wars are not evidence of genocide and ethnic cleansing. They are not evidence of genocide and ethnic cleansing. So, for example, Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law, was himself a Midianite. Rahab, who resided in Jericho, was a Canaanite. And Ruth, when we eventually get to the book bearing her name, uh, Joshua judges Ruth, she, if you remember correctly from your reading, was a Moabite. And so these are clear evidentiary examples of the fact that not all Midianites, not all Canaanites, not all Moabites were killed in an act of genocide or ethnic cleansing. 
non-Israelites could become Israelites if they desired to join themselves to and worship with the Israelites. Worship Yahweh, not just the covenant God of Israel, but the one true God of the universe. The Mosaic Law allows for non-Israelites to become Israelites. We should also remember, as we're reading through Genesis and Exodus, that both Joseph's and Moses' children were of mixed lineage. Joseph's uh, children were part Egyptian, and Moses' children were part Midianite. Also, once the conquest of Canaan was complete... Israel did not go beyond its borders to expand its territory. Right? They were taking control of the land that God had promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 from Gaza to the Euphrates River. And in 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 21, once all of that land was acquired and under the authority of Solomon, the king of Israel, Israel rested from its wars and had peace in its kingdom under the rule and reign of of Solomon. So point number four is that these divinely ordained wars are not evidence of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Point number five. The destruction of pagan peoples corresponds to the destruction of false gods, which we know are no gods at all. The destruction of pagan peoples corresponds to the destruction of false gods. So we saw this back in Exodus, the ten plagues in Egypt. We spent a lot of time talking about those ten plagues in Egypt. I believe it was three distinct sessions, maybe perhaps four if the tenth plague had its own separate uh, session. I don't remember exactly. But those ten plagues in Egypt corresponded to uh, Yahweh's superiority and destruction over the false gods of Egypt. And you can go back to listen to those sessions if you want to see that. Another example, Chemosh or Chemosh, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, for example, is defeated and dethroned whenever those devoted to him, which in this case would be the Moabites, were destroyed. Okay, So we see the defeat of pagan peoples signals the destruction of pagan gods. And if pagan idolaters are allowed to live, and so their gods are allowed to live, then Israel will be dragged into idolatry. And for evidence of that, just keep reading in the Old Testament. That is exactly what happens again and again and again in the history of Israel. And so there must be a purification there must be a purification. And Yahweh must demonstrate his superiority over the false gods who are no gods at all. Alright, so those are the five points. And then I want to get into the New Testament implications. So again, the five points are these. One, we must begin with a God-centered view. Two, we must also have an Israel-centered view at this point in history. Number three, we must remember the doctrine of federal headship. Number four, these divinely ordained wars are not evidence of genocide or ethnic cleansing. And number five, that the destruction of the pagan peoples signals a destruction of the false gods by the one true God, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Now, what are the New Testament implications for these divinely ordained Wars. What are we as New Covenant believers to take away from this? Point number one. We must see the discontinuities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, to be sure, there are continuities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but there are also very important discontinuities. Okay? We must strive to understand how the new covenant is, quote, not like, end quote, the old covenant. 
So, for example, you can see in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, God says, I am going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant which I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt, referring specifically to the covenant at Sinai. There are continuities and comparisons, but there are also discontinuities and contrasts. So, for example, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was temporary. It was temporary. It began in Exodus 20, and it ends with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It is, was temporary. And Israel remaining in the land of promise was conditional upon the obedience of the Israelites. For proof of that, go back to Leviticus 26, go to Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Okay, So, the Israel remaining in the land of promise was conditional upon the obedience of Israel. So that is just one of the many discontinuities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Point two. We have talked, even in our studies through the Pentateuch, we have talked many times about how physical things in the Old Covenant translate to spiritual things in the New Covenant. And I'm not going to talk at length about any of these, but for example, we have talked about the tabernacle. We've talked about the promised land itself. We have talked about circumcision in the context of how in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant, those were physical things and they translate to spiritual things in the New Covenant. And this has clear implications for us. For example, Jesus says to Pilate, okay, when he's on trial before Pilate and he's talking privately with Pilate, Jesus says to Pilate, you have no authority over me at all. Yet he did not fight. He did not fight. And so Jesus is fighting a spiritual battle against the forces of wickedness. He says, I could summon legions if I needed them, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet he did not order those legions of angels to his side. And so we see this translation of physical things, say a divinely ordained war, to spiritual realities under the new covenant. So, What do these historical, quote, holy wars teach us? The first thing they teach us is is about God. They teach us about God himself and, and, and God and Jesus as well. All people and land are still God's people and God's land. We see here in the conquest of Canaan, that God's land, which he gave to Abraham's descendants, is a small tract of land on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. Under the New Covenant, it's all his. It's expanded to the nations. It's expanded to the world. Because the promises that we have been given in the New Covenant are better than the promises under the terms of the Old Covenant. And to this I would commend to you just Revelation chapter 5-9, where the Lamb who was slain ransomed men from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So the focus is no longer Israel-centric, but God has ransomed people for himself from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It teaches us about the Christian life. So our holy war goes on, but our holy war is spiritual. Our holy war is spiritual. So I really do need you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I'm just going to read this text and I want you to hear the warlike language. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the uh, requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those 
who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Listen, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Listen, verse 13. But For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are sons of God. This is our holy war against the flesh. And we are commanded in Romans chapter 8 verse 13 to literally make war on our flesh. And unlike the kings of Judah, who were reformers even, we must not allow the high places to remain. Paul writes later in Romans thirteen fourteen, Make no occasion for the flesh. It must be killed in its entirety. This is our daily work against the flesh. We are also in spiritual warfare against the devil. So, not just the flesh, but also the devil. I don't want to go there in the interest of time. But you know as well as I do that in Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 through 17, we have this, put on the full armor of God that we might wage war against the spiritual authorities. Our enemies in the New Covenant, our enemies as Christians, are not human. But they are the spiritual forces of wickedness. That's first the flesh, then the devil, and of course you all know what the third one is. It is the world. And if you would go there with me very briefly, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is very important because I want you to see again the war language. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 beginning in verse Three. This is the Apostle Paul again. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of for fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your, your obedience is complete. And so we have the flesh in Romans 8. We have the devil in Ephesians 6. And we have the world in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. The mission of Christ is to spread the message of his kingdom. And there is war language in the New Testament, and we cannot escape it. As we finish up tonight... A word of encouragement for all of you brothers and sisters. Never forget, our victory, our victory is assured. Our victory is assured. If you want to see where that is in the text, I would commend to you 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. And this is where we will end. Similar to how the Israelites' victory was assured because God had promised Abraham that he would give that land to his descendants, so we also have the assurance of victory. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has 
put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Verse 28, And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Brothers and sisters, our victory is assured. Let us pray for it to come quickly. Maranatha, O Lord.